Thank you, Pastor Emmanuel, and a very good morning, brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Anthony for inviting me here this morning. It is truly my privilege to be here. I bring you greetings from the 20 sister track churches. We share this connection uh, in the Methodist Church, and it's really good to be able to glorify God in the different communities that he has put us in. Today, Pastor Anthony has asked me to speak about the topic, Turning the Hearts of the Children to Parents, uh, with the scripture text, Malachi chapter 4, verse 6, which says, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. These words were spoken by the Hebrew prophet Malachi, 100 years after the Jews were in exile in Babylon. And in that 100 years, the temple of God had been rebuilt, but the lives of the people were not rebuilt. So the priesthood was corrupt, worship was routine, divorce was widespread, and social justice was ignored. So Malachi had a lot of things to warn the people of God about. And it's chilling to think that this prophet who spoke these words, after he spoke, God was silent for 400 years. And one of the last things he spoke, you know, was about restoration of relationships, especially the relationship between parent and child. And I was thinking about, you know, a story in the Bible where, you know, we can see how a child's heart was turned back to his father. And, uh, I thought of this story, which is found in Luke chapter 15, uh, which I think will be familiar to you as well. So let's read God's word from Luke 15, verse 11 to 32. And he said, he meaning Jesus, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, 
bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now the context of this story was that Jesus was preaching to the tax collectors and sinners, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began muttering and saying, this man uh, receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus launches into three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Through these stories, Jesus was trying to teach everyone, especially the Pharisees, about God's heart for repentant sinners, about the relentless search for the lost by God the Father to bring them home into a relationship with Him. But today, we want to look at the story of the prodigal prodigal son through two other lenses. The lens of the culture of the day. Because when Jesus told this story, they would have understood it according to their practices and traditions. And it might be lost on us because we don't understand those customs fully. And also, we want to look at this story through the lens of family relationships, especially the relationship between the father and the son. So let's look first at the younger son, and I will call him the rebellious son. Why? In Luke 15, 12, we hear uh, that you know um, he goes up to his father and he says, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. Paraphrased into the culture of that day, this younger son was telling his father, I wish you were dead because you don't get inheritance until your father is dead. So in essence, this this child was telling his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. How hurtful that would be to the father. How rude, how unfilial. And we read in Luke 15, 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Now in those days, I don't think they have the kind of banking system that we had today where you can, you know, get cash from the bank. That inheritance was probably tied up in property, in livestock. And so, when the father gave that inheritance to his son, it would have meant that the son would have gone to and cash it. 
because he cannot bring the house along with him, right? He cannot bring all the sheep, goats and all that along with him to that far country. He probably encashed it and then he went off to that far country. And that would have certain implications. For the family left behind, half their wealth is gone. Half the property is gone. Half the livestock is gone. One of the sons of the family who probably is like, you know, director, you know, of the, the little business that they had, a key person had left. It would mean that they would have to reorganize things. Different people would have to step up to play different roles. On top of that, the hurt and the emotional pain of the family having a son leaving them. And most of all, the shame of the father the community, you know, would have started muttering and, you know, gossiping about what was happening in this family. But this son, this younger son, his character shows through as a person who was extremely self-centered. He did not think at all about his family or his father. All he cared about was himself and fulfilling and satisfying his own wants. What do we read in Luke 15? we read that he squandered his property in reckless living. And it came to a stage where he spent all that he had. A famine came on the land. He really had nowhere to turn to. And so, still being very self-centered, still wanting to think how he's going to preserve his own life and meet his own needs, he went to you know, sell himself as a, a, a servant. You know, and he was assigned to look after pigs. And in that situation, nobody was giving him food and he was longing for the food that the pigs were eaten. Now we need to remember that this was a Jewish community and we know that, you know, they, they have, you know, they eat kosher food. So pigs are considered unclean, right? And here was this young man looking after pigs, unclean animals. And worst of all, longing to eat what the pigs were eaten, were eating. So he was really rock bottom, rock bottom. And in that rock bottom state, he was still thinking, okay, how can I make this work? So he came up with this plan. Let me go back to my father. Uh, you know, his servants, you know, have bread to eat. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell my father, you know, I'm not worthy to be your son. I've sinned against you, against heaven, you know. Take me as one of your hired servants. Was he repentant at this stage? Perhaps not, right? I think he was just thinking of a plan to be able to put food into his own stomach. Let's leave the younger son aside and now let's look at the elder son. Now, the elder son we know came back, you know, from the fields, heard this dancing and singing, you know, and asked the servant what's happening and he was told that there was a celebration for his younger brother and he was angry and refused to go in. And, you know, in the culture of the day, we need to understand this, when there's a, the father throws a feast all right, and hosts a party, it is the duty of the elder son, or in fact, all the sons of the family, to play host. And the elder son uh, would actually have to be like the, 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 the chief waiter, he is supposed to come out and greet the guests you know, on behalf of his father. And failure to do so would have been, you know, uh, 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 an insult to his father. So when this elder son refused to come in, it would have been very shameful for the father. 
because it was disrespectful to the guests as well. And so you see that this son was defiant. He was disrespectful. He was also very dishonoring. And what was his character like? You know, uh, basically, he was irresponsible. He was not fulfilling his duties as an elder son of the family uh, by not, you know, helping his father to host that party. And earlier on, when his younger brother had gone away, he also did not fulfill his role to be a mediator, to try to bring about reconciliation in the relationships. That was also his role as an elder brother. So he was plain irresponsible. In addition to that, he had this very self-righteous attitude about him, right? And when his father came out to plead with him, you know, he actually told his father off and uh, told, uh, said to the father, I've served you and never disobeyed you, yet you never gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends. Think about that. Did he have a mindset of a son of the family? Or did he have a mindset of a servant of the family where he works and he expects some reward or payment for it? From his words, you can tell that perhaps he considered himself, you know, as more like a servant, you know, wages for what he's doing. He had not understood the privileges and the responsibilities of sonship. And that made him, you know, very self-righteous, very judgmental as well, especially about the behavior of his brother as well. Pause and think, if you were the father and you had two sons like this, what would you do? Knee-jerk reaction, I think, for most of us. Scold. <laughs> Reprimand. As a parent, you have the authority. You would give this, these children, the rebellious children, defiant children, a piece of your mind and demand obedience from from them, you know, and tell them what their responsibilities are. You might also go around judging your sons, right? Punishing them, disciplining, disciplining them, withdrawing privileges from them, right? Or if it's serious enough to you, all right, you might even disown your child. These might be the natural responses, you know, of a parent. And in the Jewish community, that actually can happen. They have these, this right, which is called the kazaza right. So whenever, uh, you know, a, a son of the family, you know, uh, takes money and spends it off in a Gentile country, and you know, that money is all gone, not invested properly or whatever it is, and he comes back empty-handed, the elders of the land would meet him at the city gate. And they would bring a pot with them. And when the young man comes in, they would throw the pot on the ground and it's, you know, broken in pieces and it would signify the broken relationship between that young man and the community. And the young man would be cut off from his family, from his community, and even from his faith. And the father of that son would not be present at that Kazaza community. It was a complete cut off. So, what was the response of the father? Let's look at it now because I think that from the father's responses, we can garner some principles that we can apply as we consider how we can facilitate the turning of the hearts of our children back to ourselves as parents. Let's look at the elder son when he refused to come in. What did the father do? We read in Luke 15, the father came out 
and entreated him, pleaded with him to the Father. The continuing relationship with the Son was key. So instead of returning anger with acrimony and judgment, which was perhaps his right in his position of authority, he wisely chose to affirm the relationship of his, with his son. It was relationship and not just rules that mattered for this father. And he tells the older son, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. This father probably saw right into the need of his son. The need was for the affirmation of sonship. Because from the son's words, you know, he was talking about, you know, what what salary or reward I can get. He didn't realize the privileges of his sonship. And the father saw that and spoke right into what the son needed to hear. Affirmation. Son. That speaks of relationship. That one word speaks of relationship. And then he goes on to say, all I have is yours. So this wise father knew that if he started to demand rights, you know, and, 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 and go into the, uh, into what the should have been, you know, uh, 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 and, and practice that, uh, it would have meant that, you know, the son's rights and his rights. And when everybody is standing on that, you know, sometimes, in fact, many times, the relationship doesn't build. In fact, it breaks down. And, um, I'm reminded of Ephesians, uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 4, where Paul exhorts us, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that can be very challenging when things are very tense between parent and child relationships. Uh, and the wisdom of this father to speak into the need of the child, putting relationship before the rules. And in doing so, you know, in, he was actually role modeling spiritual instruction, uh, that Paul is talking about. Discipline and spiritual instruction of the son. He was role modeling and not just reprimanding the child. And, you know, he was using a teachable moment of the conflict situation to model a godly response of firmness, of grace, and of forgiveness. You know, when we think about uh, bringing up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, I can think of no better blueprint than that which is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 7. So let's read this, these verses together, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. When we talk about discipline and instruction of the Lord, Deuteronomy tells us that it starts with us. We ourselves need to love God with all our heart, 
with all our soul, with all our strength. We need that personal relationship with God himself before we can impart that to the next generation. And then when you look at the words in verse 7, how we are to do this teaching and imparting to the next generation. In one verse, there are six verbs. Teach your children. Talk to your children. When you rise up, when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down. That really sounds like two, four, seven. All the time you are teaching your children. Two, four, seven, three, six, five. Because it is in living out your faith, especially in difficult times, challenging times, you know, times of conflict and how you manage them. You are living it out in your life and the word of God is being applied in your life and role modeled for your children. And when you do that, it also teaches them a biblical worldview to actually make sense of all the things that are happening in the world. So role modeling instead of just reprimanding. And finally, the third response that we can learn from the Father is that he focused on restoration and not rejection. Let's go back to the younger son. He was on the road back to his father's house, thinking of whether he was going to be meeting the elders of the city with the pot, you know, and the kazaza right going to be thrown on him. But we see in Luke 15, 20, the father's response. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I'm pretty sure the younger son was not expecting this at all. But what the son saw was the father running to him. What he felt was the embrace of the father and the father kissing him. And then he experienced the celebration and the feast that had been prepared for him. It was the opposite, perhaps, of what he was expecting for the Kazaza rite. And what motivated the father to do this? If you look at that verse again, you see the word, the father had compassion. The father didn't have sympathy. Sympathy is, you know, oh, you see something you know, bad happening and you say, oh, poor thing, and it stops there. But this dad had compassion. He felt what the younger son was going through, you know, and he understood what his son, the hurt, the pain, the regret that his son was experiencing. He put himself in his son's shoes. And sometimes I think parents, we need to do that, especially in a time of conflict, you know, when you cannot agree on anything, you know, and hard to see your child's point of view. Try to put yourself in your child's shoes. And then perhaps you will at least try to understand. And from there, perhaps the conversations can go into a, a conversation that can bring healing instead of tearing things apart. But this is what this father did. He had compassion. And that compassion propelled him to forgive his son. Forgive all the hurt and all the shame that had been inflicted on him. It compelled him to embrace his son and to restore his son. 
And what did that restoration look like? It was a feast. He called for the servants to bring on, you know, the best robe, probably his one of his own robes, because the son would have had no clothes in that home. A ring on his finger, a signal, or, you know, a signet of authority. Sandals on his feet, because it's usually, you know, the family members who wear sandals. The servants go barefoot, and he actually, you know, uh, killed the fattened calf. The, that fattened calf is only used for special occasions. And he reinstated his child as a son because he went on to declare, this, my son, was dead, is alive again. He was lost and is found. With this declaration, he confirmed for everybody, his family, his servants, the community, that he had received this son back into his family. And as the son experienced the father's forgiveness, unconditional love and restoration, his heart finally realized the magnanimity of his own wrongdoing, how much he had hurt his father, how far he had separated himself from his father and the family, and the amazing undeserved grace and love that was lavished on him by his father. And his heart now truly turned in reconciliation to his father. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Notice here, he does not talk about being a servant anymore because he had finally turned his heart back into relationship with his father. He was finally home. And so, brothers and sisters, from this story of the prodigal son, there are lessons that we can learn, that we can use to facilitate facil turning our children's heart back to ourselves. And I want to end today's sermon by telling you the story of a real prodigal son. His name is Christopher. And you know, when he was nine years old, he came across a pornographic magazine, you know, uh, and that set him on the path, you know, of same-sex attraction and eventually homosexuality. And by the time he reached his university days, you know, he was actually a dental undergrad. You know, he came home one day and he told his parents, I am gay. And of course, the parents were devastated. His mom, Angela, you know, was a very truly, you know, true blue Asian lady, you know. Everything is done to perfection, you know, family, you know, and the house is run, you know, uh, uh, on a very, you know, tight schedule, you know, uh, academic grades are important, you know, she ran that kind of a household. So when her son came back and told her that he was gay, she was devastated. And she told the son, you choose the gay lifestyle or you get out of this family. And the son chose the gay lifestyle and he left the family. And her whole world crumbled down. She didn't have a good relationship with her husband. She felt very unsupported by the husband. And so the husband told her, since Christopher has gone his own way, let's all part ways. Uh, let's get a divorce. And you know, she was really crushed. And she decided that she was going to end her life. So she booked a train ticket from Chicago where she was to Louisville where her son was because she wanted to see him for one more time. On that train trip, she somebody 
happened to pass her a gospel tract. And on that train trip, she started reading and she read about the love of God, how God loves her so much. There's nothing that you've done in your life that God cannot forgive you for. How Jesus came to die for her sins on the cross and how if she trusted in Jesus, gave her life to Him, confessed her sins to God, God would restore her into a relationship with Him. By the end of that train trip, she had given her life to God. And so when she reached uh, Louisville, she found a church. She started to, you know, uh, grow and be discipled in her faith. And that was when she discovered that certain things in her life, the way she interacted with her husband and her son, had exasperated them and turned them away from her. She repented. And she continued to cultivate that gentle and quiet spirit to the extent that her husband noticed and said, what Angela has is not a religion, but a relationship. And that drew him to God as well. And he gave his life to God and their marriage was saved. And so now father and mother, like the father heart of God, began to seek out their son. They tried to contact him, reach him. They went back to his house in Louisville, gave a Bible to him, which he threw into the dustbin. But Angela never gave up. She started to pray for her son and she got a hundred other people to pray for him. She fasted weekly on Mondays for seven years and she even went on a 39-day fast for her son. And Years later, God started to answer her prayers. Christopher was arrested in his home because the police came and found 9.1 tons of marijuana in his home. So he was sent to prison. And from prison, he tried calling his gay friends, you know, and none of them picked up his call. So he tried calling his parents and he was dreading what they would say to him expecting to be scolded and reprimanded. But all he heard was, are you okay? In the meantime, Angela knew that this was the beginning of God answering her prayers. So she got a long roll of paper and she started writing, number one, God answered my prayer and she wrote, Christopher is in a safe place. He's in prison safe place. Number two, he finally called home. And over the days and months, God began to answer her prayers in many ways until that list of answered prayers became very, very long, taller than her. Another way that God answered her prayer in a way that she didn't expect in prison Christopher discovered that he was HIV positive. And of course, it was like a death sentence to him. And feeling very depressed, he was in his cell and he looked up and he saw this scribbling on the wall. If you're bored, look up Jeremiah 29.11. And Jeremiah 29.11 says, I know the plans I have for you to give you hope and a future. And Christopher started reading the Gospel of Mark. And as he finished reading that Gospel, he knew that God loved him and had a plan for him and he gave his life to Jesus. 
And in prison, he started to grow in the Lord, you know, uh, and he gave up his homosexual lifestyle, gave up all his, his drug lifestyle as well. He even enrolled into Moody Bible School with the prison mates as his references. And he managed to get in with those references. Today, he is a Bible scholar, a speaker, and an author. And together with his mother, he wrote a book called Out of a Far Country. And it documents his whole journey of a prodigal son coming home. I want to read you an excerpt from this book that recounts the day when he was released from prison and how his parents were at the prison gates running figuratively to receive him back again. So Christopher writes, I couldn't believe that this time was over. No more handcuffs, no more chains, no more guards, no more stand-up counts. I soaked in the freedom of this new start. I looked at my mother. She was leaning against the headrest, her eyes closed, and with a smile of contentment lit up on her face. It hit me then, the significance of what they had done for me. They must have worried day and night. They had probably dealt with criticism and condescension from people in their community. Oh yes, they're the ones with the son in prison. And the countless hours of prayer my parents had spent on my behalf. I had seen my mother's knees, brown and calloused, from kneeling in her prayer closet. And all the pages of my father's Bible work from thumbing through God's promises. They'd done this for me. Their son, who stormed out almost eight years ago, yelling that he had a real family, his gay friends. But my real family, it turned out, was my real family. Thank you, I said, looking at both of them. Thank you so much. And then, as they drove into their homes, there was a tree, and around this tree, there was a yellow ribbon. And some of you who know this uh, a little, the significance of that, it comes from a song of a prison inmate who was coming out and he was telling his loved ones, if you still want me, please tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. And so Christopher, as he drove into the driveway of his home, he saw this yellow ribbon around the tree, uh, and as he pushed open the door into the living room, in the living room, he saw over 100 yellow ribbons packed everywhere in that room. And each yellow ribbon was signed with words of encouragement. And his mother told him that each ribbon was signed by someone who had been praying for him all the seven years that he was in prison. And Christopher writes, it was more than I could bear. That much love, that much perseverance, and that much grace extended by so many people. They love me because they love Jesus. And they, like my parents, were willing to give me a second chance. His mother embraced him and said, Welcome home. And in that moment, I realized that her journey had been just as long and painful as mine. I replied to her, I'm home, mom. I'm home. And I knew that what I said 
was true in every way after being lost so long in a far country. I was finally home. Chris's heart had turned to his heavenly father while he was in prison and now his heart was turned to his earthly parents as well. Brothers and sisters, the story of the prodigal son reminds us again to facilitate the turning of our hearts of our children to their parents. It is modelled on God's love for us. God's perseverance in seeking us out, loving us unconditionally, forgiving us freely, restoring us completely through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to an eternal relationship with Him. May the way God parents us be the model we use to parent our children so their hearts will be turned in relationship to us and also to God. So for parents, this will mean that you focus on relationship and not just the rules. It means demonstrating unconditional love to them. It means role modeling and not just reprimanding. Teaching faith through living it out authentically in full view of your children. Focus on restoration of relationships and not rejection. Keep an eye always to build relationships and not to tear them down. Speak and minister to the heart of your children. Practice forgiveness. These will help to strengthen your family relationships, nurture faith and bring our children home to us and to God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. And Lord, as we come before you now, I just want to pray for ourselves, for each of us. If we have wandered away from you, if we have turned cold towards you, I pray, Father, that we will now turn our own hearts back to you, that we will put you on the throne of our lives once again and love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. I want to pray for parents here, Lord, that you will help them to love unconditionally and forgive freely, even though they may have been hurt by what their children may have done to them. And Lord, I pray that healing will come to families that are affected. I pray that hearts of the children will turn to their parents. I pray that you will help parents to nurture their children in word as well as in deed, living their lives out as role models for their children to follow. And Lord, I just want to spend a moment to pray for prodigal children. If you have a prodigal child in your home, or if you know of a prodigal in your community and in the family here at Angmokyu, lift them up to the Lord now. Pray for them. Lord, I join my prayer with the prayers of my brothers and sisters. I pray for the prodigals to come home, Lord. For their eyes to be opened once again to the truth of your word. For their hearts to feel the love 
in forgiveness of God and of their earthly parents. I pray that, Lord, in your good time, reconciliation will come where hurts have torn relationships. I pray for God encounters, O Lord, that will bring the prodigal children home so that their hearts will be turned to their parents. And most of all, Lord, their hearts will be turned to you. Have mercy upon them, Lord. Bring them home. And so, Father, we want to leave all these prayers at your altar because, God, you are a faithful God and you are a God in whom we can trust. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.